Tonight's scripture reading will be from Revelations 3, 1 through 6. Revelations 3, 1 through 6. And it reads, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and, to the se- and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and what is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at the hour I will come against you. Yet you have, you, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled, soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name for my father and for his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, says to the churches. You may be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you this evening. Presence tonight. Uh, for those of you who may be visiting with us, we're very happy to have you. Thank you, Jacob, for reading our scriptures tonight and doing such a fine job with that. Stand for leading us in our singing, such beautiful singing, and the fine prayers Max has led us in. We're very grateful for these aspects of worship and those who've led us in our worship. If you need an outline tonight, uh, these deacons are available to uh, give you one. All you need to do is raise your hand, and they'll make it available for you. We're involved in our Sunday night seminar, and the subject of our seminar is the church. And so we're looking at the churches of the New Testament. Tonight happens to be a discussion about the church at Sardis. And that's the reason for the reading of Revelation chapter 3, uh, 1 through 6. And we've looked at a number of congregations already. Uh, We've looked at Ephesus, and I used the text in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2 to talk about the church at Ephesus. And now I use chapter 3 to talk about the church at Sardis. Though this is not necessarily a series on the seven churches of provincial Asia, as we see in the book of Revelation, we do want to pick out this one tonight, the church of Sardis, to study very carefully. I just can't imagine all of the congregations that have been established by the Apostle Paul, either directly by him or indirectly through others he has taught. And there are just so many congregations that came about as a result of his, of his work. And we see once again tonight um, the work of the Apostle Paul and those uh, that have listened to him and have learned by him and his wonderful teaching of God's Word. It talks about a congregation. There are some good things that are said about the congregation, but not a lot as we are going to learn. One thing is said, though. Jesus says, I know your works. And every time I read that, I'm impressed with the fact that Christ knows with a divine knowledge the kind of work that we're doing. There's a lot that we can learn from the churches of the New Testament. We can learn the things that we need to be doing, and we can also learn the things to avoid, and avoid the mistakes that some of them made. There is a human side to the church. There is the divine side that's always right, God's side. But there's a human side, that's our side, and sometimes we make mistakes and we need to be corrected. And the Word of God makes those corrections. And we need to learn from it so that we will not make the same mistakes 
so that they made, and that's part of the value about these New Testament congregations. The church in different locations. Tonight, the church located at Sardis. But Jesus knew their works. He knew what they were doing. And that's what he says in the very first uh, uh, passage of chapter 3. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. We want to talk about that in just a minute. But before I actually discuss that point, I want to discuss the fact as an introductory type of matter just how much Jesus loves the church. He loved the church at Sardis. And you're going to hear some criticism of the church at Sardis and some caution about or toward the church at Sardis. But he does it out of love. Jesus did everything out of love. And I don't think that we could ever question the love of Jesus. In fact, I would challenge you tonight that whenever you feel down and whenever you feel bad and whenever you feel like the world's against you and you feel like nothing's going right, just remember the love of Christ for you and the love of Christ for me. And if we need to be reminded of that, then just think about Jesus hanging on that cross, how that he hung on that cross for you and he hung on that cross for me and he hung on that cross for those wicked people out there who were reviling him and rebuking him and doing all kinds of terrible things against him. And he loved the thieves that he was crucified with. And one of those thieves he took to paradise with him that very day that he died. He has a deep love for people. Good people, bad people, Jesus loves them. He loved them and continues to love them. And that's the way it is with the church at Sardis. Why he, li- he loved despicable people like Matthew, who was a publican or a tax collector. He even loved Judas. Even though Judas would betray him, Jesus loved him. Why he loved Martha and Lazarus and Mary. You know why? Because the Bible tells me that he did. He loved these people. Some were his very dear friends. Some, of course, would not follow him. Such as the rich young ruler who turned away sorrowful and would not follow Jesus. He loved him. The point that I'm making in the very beginning moments of our study tonight is the great love of Jesus Christ for this church, the Sardis Church, and for the church that you and I are a part of tonight at this location called Broadway. One of my favorite verses about the love of God and the love of Christ would have to be Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. I know that there are many great passages about love, but Romans 5, 8 would have to really be at the top of the list. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when you get to feeling down, and you feel like nobody cares, just remember that Jesus cares, and Jesus loves, and Jesus demonstrated that care and love in such a wonderful way. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. Now, here's got to be the Everest of commands, and we ought to lay down our for the brethren. I say the Everest of commands is one of the most challenging passages we can read in the pages of the Bible to emulate the love of God and to emulate the love of Christ toward others. You know, if we had that kind of love for each other, the church would be a powerhouse in the community. Nobody would be able to resist it. It would be a great glory to God Almighty. Tonight, let's look at another congregation of the New Testament that Jesus loved, that Jesus died for, and that Jesus wanted to be faithful to Him. 
One of the things that we're going to have to learn about this particular congregation is the city in which it was located. And I could spend some time talking about the specifics of that location, but I don't want to spend our time looking at all the geography in that particular matter. It was in Asia. It was in uh, what might be termed as Turkey today. It was near Thyatira. It was near Philadelphia. Smyrna and Ephesus were not far from these particular places. And if you looked on a Bible map in the backs of your Bibles, you could locate these particular matters. It was a rather famous city, the city of Sardis, because it was famous for its commercial business, its wool making, and its dyeing of wool. And some say that it was Sardis who really uh, patented this idea of being able to dye the wools in its uh, different colors. Alexander the Great conquered the city in 334 B.C. I don't know that there's any significance in that other than the fact it has been conquered over and over and over again. Western kings would come up against eastern kings and there would be a battle and so many times it would be in the city of Sardis until ultimately the city of Sardis is in ruins. We do know where the ancient city of Sardis is today but it has declined through the centuries so much so that it is of no significance with regard to um, uh, its location. I think that might give us some indication as to what's going on in the church at Sardis. The city's on decline. It was a very, uh, very religious city in a way because there were so many different religions of the day. Pagan religions, of course, and uh, there was paganism that was tolerated, and Christianity was another religion among other religions of the day, and they tolerated it and never really looked upon it as being unique and, and special other than the fact that here's another religion to add to the ones we already have, and that's much the attitude that they had in ancient times. We will add another one to the religions that we already have. And it was a very religious city already, but it was a city on decline. But I think the significant thing for us tonight is that there's very little commendation. If you read the text with me this evening, very little commendation that Jesus gives to this congregation. He says, I know you the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Very little commendation given to the church at Sardis. I think there's some good things that are always said about each of these congregations, but the church at Sardis gets very little commendation. Now, I have to say this a little bit uh, about myself. I preached at Sardis one time, but it was Sardis, Mississippi. Uh, it wasn't Sardis in, <laughs> in Asia. And then I also preached at a congregation not too far from Sardis, Mississippi, uh, called uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi. And it was the Philadelphia Church of Christ. And then I also preached at the Smyrna Church of Christ in Smyrna, Tennessee. In fact, I think I preached at all the seven churches of Asia. Only they weren't in Asia. They were either in Tennessee or northern Mississippi or southwest Tennessee, middle Tennessee or southwest Tennessee. I preached in all these congregations. But they weren't the actual seven churches of Asia. The reason I'm making a little light of that point is that I've often thought, I don't know that I'd want to call myself the Sardis Church of Christ. Now, I have 
memories of the Sardis Church of Christ in northern Mississippi. In fact, they called and I was a student at the Harding Graduate School, and I answered the phone, and I said, this is Jim Laws, and this guy says, my name is Tom Sawyer from Mississippi. And I said, sure you are. <laughs> and lo and behold, he was. He was one of the fine elders of the church at Sardis, Mississippi. And we had a long, fine relationship, and I built a lot of friends there and had a lot of friends and acquaintances for the fine church at Sardis, Mississippi. But I've often thought in the back of my mind, I don't know that I'd want to call myself the Sardis Church of Christ because there's so little commendation given to the church in the New Testament. And I would surely the church that was alive and had the reputation of being alive in the past, but now we're dead. And I'd certainly hate to be involved in a congregation whereby they no longer were alive and active, but dead. Especially when you realize the fact in verse 1, Jesus said, I know your works. I really know what you're all about. Now you got a reputation. The reputation lingers on. But the fact of the matter is that you're dying and you're dead. Verse 4 tells us that there are a few left that have not died, but basically the church has lost its spiritual fervor and its desire and its zeal. Um, I preached at several congregations that I wondered about the name. It was simply a place name. The church of the Lord has no It belongs to Christ, and thus when we say church of Christ, we're not really referring to a proper name. We're referring to a relationship, people who belong to Christ. That's why I left that Greek word up there, ekklesia, the people of God, the people who belong to Christ, sometimes referred in the Scripture, Mark 16 and 16, as the church of Christ. But I have been to some locations where the name was somewhat unusual. I preached one time at the Needmore Church of Christ, and I thought that was an unusual. I've been to the Sardis Church of Christ and preached for them. And I've been to a number of places that I thought had unusual place names. But this particular congregation of God's people, the Sardis Church, the church in that location, had grown weary in well-doing. They got tired, and they just quit working, and now they're dead. Now, I think I've experienced place to place. I think I've been to some places that had become weary and well-doing. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, the Bible tells us that one can become weary in well-doing, that one can work and work and work and become tired and quit working. I think I've known who became weary in well-doing, that they worked and worked and worked, and they just quit at the end. But the Bible tells us that simply will not do and that will not be pleasing in the sight of God. The guarantee against this problem of becoming weary and well-doing and just quitting and dying has got to be 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.
Now, I think that wonderful promise there in verse 58 is something that we can take to the bank and that we can really be encouraged by the fact that our labor is not in vain. And whatever we do, it is pleasing to the sight of God so long as it is in accordance with the authority of Jesus Christ. I think part of the problem of falling into a dead type of spiritual state like the church was facing at Sardis is the idea they were just going through the formality of Christianity rather than allowing it to fill their heart and to fill their life. In other words, they were sort of going through the motions. And I think people can do that. And I think congregations can do that. They can lose the fervor and the desire and the zeal that they once had and become weary in well-doing and just go through the motions. Go through it all again. And then next week go through it all again as if it were some kind of form or ritualistic service that really has lost its meaning and doesn't have any true value. Doesn't really encourage. Doesn't really build up. We cannot allow that to happen. Now he says in verse 4 that there are some who are not done this. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Let them continue to boost the congregation. Let those few names be the encouragement that needs to be at the congregation to keep that place from dying. Now, I'm concerned about this particular point, and thus I raise it for consideration tonight. Because it comes from the pages of the Word of God. I think I see that happening in some places where there are some sardises out there. I don't believe that's the case here at all. But I believe that there are some cases out there where they're just going through the formalities. We cannot allow that to happen. If I had the time, I'd go to the book of Isaiah. And I'd love to read Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 2. How that Isaiah tells them that the children of Israel were doing the same thing. Going through a rote, memorized formality that really didn't mean anything that really didn't lift their lives and motivate them to live for God. We cannot allow that to happen. That's the key problem at the church at Sardis. And for that reason, we have this passage tonight. Little commendation is given to the church at Sardis. Caution and given. As you read through this particular passage in Revelation chapter 3, he gives caution. The first one is not so nice. It's given in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You are dead. The first caution in the course is one that needs to be very careful. It's not a welcome sight. The caution and encouragement in verse 2 is, wake up. Wake up. Now, you can do this. Now, if you're using an older translation, such as the King James Version, you might use the word, be watchful there. And that's a good way to consider it. The concept there that the English Standard Version is conveying is, wake up. Become alive and active once again. And do not be filled with this same kind of uh, spiritual lethargy 
that has taken place and is now taking control of your life. Wake up. I'm told by reading the materials of the location of the city of Sardis, and I didn't want to spend a lot of time on the location, but it was built on a hill up toward the mountains. And, of course, this gave it a strategic position, and that's why there were so many battles fought at Sardis, because it was high up on the hill, and if your city was located high on the hill, then you could throw the rocks down or shoot the arrows down or pour the oil down upon the enemy as they were trying to come and overtake the, uh, the city. But that is the thing that they were doing, relying upon their location rather than their spiritual desire. They needed to wake up. Don't rest upon things that have happened in the past or been done on the past, in the past. But now wake up and be watchful with regard to what is happening to you now. A city that is strategically built on a mountain or a hill is a watchful city. It's watching out and can see what's coming as far as the enemy is concerned. It's going to take strong leadership upon the part of a city to wake up and to be watchful. But that's what he's talking about with regard to the church. Wake up and be consecrated once again to God. And be watchful of the things that you need to be watching out for. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Assemble yourselves together and there in turn be the kind of congregation that God wants you to be, refreshing yourselves and building yourselves back up. I like that phrase in the book of Acts, and I think of it as I'm thinking about these particular matters with you tonight. It's in Acts chapter 3, and Peter's there at the temple, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and that phrase that he says, um, seasons of refreshing, and I'll spend a moment turning to it and reading it for you. It's found, I believe, in about verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Repent and turn back, this English Standard Version says. King James Version uses the phrase seasons of refreshing, which really is the idea of get back to the way it was, the thrill of what it was like to be a child of God once before. Get back to that. Recapture that. And I think that's what he's saying in verse 2 of our study tonight. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And so there's work that can be done to rekindle this matter, that life can be put back into this congregation, giving it the boost that it needs to have. The bench warmer will not do this. It will take faithful, dedicated members of the congregation to involve itself in such a way that it brings life and energy to the congregation. Otherwise, if we become just bench warmers, living out our Christianity in a mindless, purposeless formality, then of course the church will die. And in turn, that's a sad situation. And I'm concerned about that even tonight. I'd like to notice with you verse 3. Verse 3 of this particular passage talks about some things to remember. And the Bible writer is saying, if I can get them to remember these things, and the revelation is coming from Christ himself, and John is recording it for our study, then this will help them accomplish what they need to do. 
Here's what you need to remember. Four things are given to us. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. And there's always this point. Repent. I'm in Revelation chapter verse 3, and they're told to remember four things. If we want to capture this desire that we should have for the Lord and rekindle the spirit that we really need to have, rather than just being through a mindless formality, we've got to do these four things. We've got to, first of all, remember what we've received. Well, you might ask the question, what have we received? And we could spend a sermon on that. Every good and perfect gift has come down from a Father above. James tells us in James chapter 1 and verse 17. But I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, that I have received all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Now that Ephesians 1, 3, every spiritual blessing that God has in store for me, He's given to me as a child of God, and it comes to me through Christ Jesus. I have the hope of eternal life. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. The hope from God, who cannot lie, has given me this hope. Now I have hope for obtaining eternal life. And I need to remember that. There's some things to remember that will keep the church alive and to keep it from dying like this church at Sardis was doing. was actually of being alive. Still, it was dead. There were a few left, but it was dying. You've got to remember. You've got to remember what... God's done for us. Remember what we've got in Christ Jesus. But he tells them, remember what you've heard. Well, what had they heard? And in a general way, can't we summarize that? How that God himself came from heaven and lived among men and suffered and died and was raised from the dead by the power of God and now serves as king over his kingdom, the New Testament church. They had heard that wonderful story. They had heard the wonderful story how that God became man, and now man can receive forgiveness of sin. They had heard, and we need to remember that. Now, if we're going to preach and if we're going to teach things that really don't matter, if we're going to preach and we're going to teach the latest things that we've seen and heard, in the newsstands and the things that we've read as far as the latest books are concerned, though there may be some that certainly help us understand New Testament Christianity better. But if that's all we avail ourselves of, then of course we're going to forget this great message of what we have heard, the greatest message that can be heard. But he tells them to keep it. And I circle that in my text in red. In fact, these four. Because I want to remember these four. Remember then what you received. And I've got that boxed in red. And heard. Keep it. And I use the word hold fast. Hold fast to that. Remember what you've received and remember what you've heard. And keep it. Hold fast to it. And don't let it go. Making sure that we understand how important that matter is. And then I've also got boxed in red in my translation, this word repent. And it's the fourth thing that they need to remember. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. And as I said just a moment ago, 
whenever you find a problem with regard to the text and people in the text or the story of a congregation or the story of people found in the pages of the Bible, repentance is not far away. The Bible is telling us to change our love, to give up our love of sin and give up or quit our practice of sin, and that's repentance. And he's saying that's what you got to do. Now, it's not too late. There's still a few there that can give energy and life to the church. And what this New Testament church needs to do, needs to repent and turn this thing around. And it can be done. However, we can wait too long in this matter. And as we wait too long, we're going to find that there is a severe penalty for a lack of obedient faith. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And, will, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The last part of verse 3. There's a penalty for disobedience. If you'll not wake up. If you won't remember. If you won't do these things. Remember what you've heard and what you've received. And keep it and repent. Then I'm going to come as a thief. And you know what a thief does. I don't need to explain that particular matter to you. But a thief comes unexpectedly. A thief comes suddenly and takes away. Takes away when we don't expect it. And if you're not prepared ahead of time, it's too late to get prepared after the thief has come. What he means by thief is the idea that suddenly, unexpectedly, he will hold them account. And there in turn take their lampstand away from that grouping of lampstands we read in Revelation chapter 1, several weeks ago, I'll take these blessings away from you. And you'll no longer be counted as children of God. And that can happen. We can lose our faithful standing before God if we fail to obey Him. You see, that's the penalty for disobedience. But I'd like to talk about one other point that he raises as far as the church at Sardis is concerned. And that's the reward of obedience. Not only does he tell them there's a penalty for failing to obey, there's a reward for those who do. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, verse 4. People who have not and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Now, there's a lot of discussion among the commentaries as to what that really means. And there's a number of different means by which of looking at that. Some have said, and this could be true, I'd have to rely upon others on this because I do not know of it firsthand uh, from the research, but some have said when a first century person was going to be baptized, that they were baptized in white garments. They put white garments on them and they were immersed in water and they came up out of the water clean and purified. In other words, the idea was you're going in dirty, but you're coming out clean. You're going in a sinner, but you're coming out a saint. You're coming out as a child of God. And there was a wonderful symbolism there in the white and the purity of the garments. And some say, well, that represents the purity and the righteousness of those who are faithful children of God. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. 
But then there's another school of thought with regard to this particular passage, and it also has a lot of reasonable nature to it. That school of thought is the idea that the Sanhedrin would call its priests in. The Sanhedrin was responsible for the Levites and uh, uh, the priestly tribe, and as they would call them in, they would examine their lives. And if looked upon as being a pure life and a wholesome life, they would be able to walk about the city in white robes. But if there was some malady found in their life and they could not be uh, viewed as a morally upright priest of the Jewish religion and the Jewish people of the time, their white robe was taken from them and they were given a black robe in which they would walk up and down the city, which would make a great deal of disgrace and shame upon them to walk as a priest before the city and before the populace in a black robe. Now, whatever the referent to this passage is, one thing is for sure. The faithful are viewed by God as being righteous and godly because of their faithfulness. The one who conquers will be in white garments. And I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. There's an interesting figure that comes up with regard to the reward for obedience One's name will never be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. It comes to us again in Revelation chapter 20 in the verses, verse 15. The idea behind the imagery is that in a city, the city had a registry, sort of a listing of its citizenry. And there, the citizens would be listed as living there and they'd be on the rolls. But yet, if a person had died or if a person left and followed a, uh, went to another city, they'd be taken off the book and off the registry. But here's a book you'll never be taken off of unless you're no longer faithful to the cause of Christ and the teaching of the Word of God. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. It seems as though the imagery conveys the idea of a divine record-keeping system, a system whereby God knows who are his, and that he gives them the promise, your name will never be taken out of the registry from a citizen of heaven so long as you walk in the light and are faithful to the will and the word of God. We have a uh, uh, kind of a role here at the congregation. We work on the role here. Sometimes people move. and Sometimes people become a part of the congregation. We add their name to the role and, and they are with us, or maybe they're no longer with us and the name's taken off the roll. It's a kind of a record-keeping system we have to better facilitate our work here and to help people live the Christian life, a role. I think it's common among congregations to have kind of a role or listing of members who are part of the congregation and count themselves as part of the congregation. Maybe there's some people on that roll that don't need to be on that roll. It's just human beings trying to keep track the best way we can and encourage people to live the Christian life. But maybe, as best we can, we fail to put some people on that roll that ought to be on that roll. We do the best we can, but maybe we make a mistake here and there. One thing's for sure, no one's in the Lamb's book of life that should not be there. And no one's going to be taken out of life unless the Lord himself 
takes their name out of that divine record-keeping system. And he's trying to tell them that there's a reward for faithful obedience to the will of God. That your name will be in the will never be blotted out, counted as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven because of your faithfulness. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. What a wonderful image that really is. And it reminds you of the wonderful grace that God has in store of his people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Well, I'll tell you one thing. There's a real caution given in verse 6. The only way to be sure about this is to listen to the teaching of the Spirit of God. He who has an ear, the Spirit says to the churches. And he's talking about the Lord's church in different locations, but he uses the plural form there the churches, the congregations, synonymously used. Though there's one church, though it has different locations. But the point of the matter is churches need to be listening to what the Spirit says. If we're going to avoid obedience. And if we're going to receive the reward for obedience, then churches, specifically here the church at Sardis, needs to listen to what the Spirit has said. To listen to what the Spirit has said. Listen to the teaching of the Word of God. To open up this grand old book and study its pages carefully and considerately. To notice carefully and apply it properly. There in turn make changes and modifications in our lives as the need does arise from time to time, and thus enjoy the benefits of obedience. You and I have studied the of the New Testament. It's a congregation that has some serious problems, a dead congregation spiritually, though there are some who are still alive. They're called upon to renovate, revive, fill with zeal and enthusiasm, a congregation that is dying. We can't afford to let that happen. We've got to study. We've got to learn. We've got to live. We've got to tell others of how important it is to remember the things that we have received and heard, how important it is to keep it, and how important it is to repent when we've made the wrong choice in life. If you made the wrong choice in life, now's the time to repent of it. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, now's the time to repent, confess, and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. If you've been unfaithful, now's the time to make the change. And maybe someone is saying within themselves, you know, I didn't realize how important this matter was. I didn't realize just how important this was, this matter of being a faithful New Testament Christian. I've really let these matters slip and slide. I want to make a change. I pray you make it tonight. Make it before it's too late, before the time comes and no preparation can be made. Won't you do it now? While together we stand and while we sing.